Today's guest is Mariana Fotaki, Professor of Business Ethics here at Warwick Business School, and as some of you may know already from a previous podcast, a specialist in the phenomenon of whistleblowing, what it means, how it operates, and what the fate of the whistleblower is likely to be. And in this Core Insights podcast, one of a series focusing on the impact the coronavirus pandemic is having on both individuals and society, and on how your organisations can survive it, she'll be telling us how COVID-19 is currently throwing this phenomenon into sharp relief. I spoke to her via a Zoom link to Athens, from where she began with a working definition of whistleblowing. A whistleblower is a person who actually raises concerns in the context of work and these concerns can regard activities that are unethical, illegal and, and, and concerning other forms of wrongdoing and this is done in the public interest and that aspect of public interest is key. And you point out that although COVID and whistleblowing are closely linked, after all, it was a whistleblower who drew attention to the virus in China in the first place, that the whole phenomenon of whistleblowing was an issue well before the pandemic. Indeed, indeed. So, uh, well, healthcare professionals, including nurses, uh, trainees, doctors, have had troubles to speak up and be listened to and not be retaliated against for a very long time within the NHS and in other health systems as well. So this is uh, well documented. But um, the COVID pandemic is that uh, brought a different dimension to this. And this dimension is this, that not only uh, health professionals, as I said, including doctors, nurses and carers on whom we rely and depend on for our protection, treatment and care, had to report various forms of cover-ups, but they also had to come out and report the absence of, um, of protection for themselves and their patients. So that made it quite uh, unique in a sense that everyone would agree that for health professionals to be able to do their job and take proper care of their patients, they need to protect themselves from the disease, from transmission, from the virus, but they also need to protect themselves in order not to pass the virus onto their patients. And yet, we have so many reports from around the world that doctors and nurses and carers were not offered adequate protection. And not only were they not offered adequate protection, but they were also prevented from reporting on this. So in your view, those on the COVID front line face a double threat, a threat to their health, indeed to their lives, and a threat to their livelihoods if they speak out. Indeed, and in the case of COVID, uh, not only do they risk their lives because they don't protect themselves, and we also know by now, the more one is exposed to the high virus load, the more one is risking actually to contract the disease, and the more one is risking to actually suffer from COVID-19. And unfortunately, many people, even very young doctors, and like a doctor... Um, Li Wenliang from China, who was only 34, he also actually had fallen a victim and succumbed to the disease because of the very fact of being exposed to the high virus load. So treating many patients who are ill without adequate protective equipment makes that risk even higher. So that is one aspect to this. The other aspect is that when doctors raise 
these concerns or nurses or carers, they put actually the leaders and, uh, and managers within their institution and more broadly the leaders uh, within their um, area or even political leaders, you know, the highest leadership, they put, they put them in a very bad light. And, and of course, nobody wants to be held responsible for deaths. And so that information must be suppressed for leaders not to be held responsible for not offering uh, protection and from not actually taking the adequate measures to manage the, the outbreak of COVID. But do we have any hard independent evidence about the numbers of people, potential whistleblowers, affected? Let me speak about the NHS first, right? Uh, so we have, uh, I mean, there are many reports by um, Public Concern Network, which is now renamed as Protect, which is a charity that is um, um, set up to to, uh, to protect whistleblowers and to help them with their, with their throughout the process of the disclosure. We have another body uh, that's, uh, that is set up by whistleblowers themselves called Whistleblowers UK. And we also have something uh, that is now represented in the parliament, which is the all-party parliamentary group on whistleblowing and all these three bodies, and there are more, um, and there are more, all these three bodies have uh, widely documented actually um, the extent of uh, whistleblowing uh, disclosures taking place in the NHS. In one of its research, Public Concern Network has also um, reported that for every person who comes out and raises concerns, there are at least nine other people who would have wanted and who have solid grounds for actually coming up, up with the disclosure and reporting wrongdoing, and yet they don't because of two reasons. First of all, because they see that uh, those who speak up, the whistleblowers are uh, very severely retaliated against by the organization. And secondly, the practice that they are, uh, of wrongdoing is not actually dealt with. So there is no reason for people actually to, to, to come out um, and report and raise concerns and report wrongdoing because A, nothing will happen, most likely. Uh, there will be, uh, I mean, the organization will uh, close its ranks in order not to acknowledge that uh, the wrongdoing and then that, that, that practice can continue in different forms. And secondly, and more importantly, as you did say, Trevor, they risk their livelihoods and that means that they will be most likely terminated on, on various grounds from their job. And secondly, they will actually suffer a war of attrition, which has a very big cost on their well-being. Now, you quote the letter to the Prime Minister, signed by 10,000 NHS staff, saying their protective equipment was deficient, and they claim merely speaking out about it put them at risk of dismissal. Now, what measures do you think should have been in place to allay those fears? Well, what really needs to happen is that raising concerns at work should be the norm. Um, and it should be accepted as an important part of people's day-to-day -day work as they reflect on their professional practice and as they work to improve the service. Because, you know, the thing is this, that we all make mistakes. It's just how we address those mistakes and what are the channels for reporting those mistakes so they don't, don't get um, repeated and they don't get covered up. So uh, whistleblowing in reality is a very useful device for the organizations if it is done internally. It's an early warning system that gives managers an opportunity to put actually things right before anything catastrophic happens. And this has to be 
you know, the internal speaking arrangements have to, to be multiple, uh, fit for purpose, anonymous, and trustworthy. So people will use them. But in the absence of those structures, can't you understand the problem from a management point of view? I mean, as a journalist, I'd be delighted to get a story, a scoop from a whistleblower. But the management might quite rightly claim it's doing its best and going public, talking to the likes of me and my colleagues, isn't helpful. Especially when people blowing the whistle may not appreciate the problems management have in dealing with this thing behind the scenes. Uh, absolutely, 100%, Trevor. And that's exactly why we're suggesting that whistleblowing, or even to put it more mildly, internal speaking up arrangements, mechanisms for raising concerns internally are an absolute winner for the organization and the management. Why? Because people will raise these concerns in a safe environment when they know that they won't be retaliated against, number one, and that their concerns will be actually acted upon or at least investigated. So in that way, people don't have to go to the journalists, to the media, or don't have to go to the regulator, and they don't have to make it public. So how can I put it? It's a safeguard for organizations to implement the good practice and act early on warning signs that whistleblowers will provide. Now, obviously, things haven't reached that point yet, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. But why, having studied whistleblowing in a number of businesses and organizations, do you think this is a particular issue in healthcare? <laughs> That's a very good question. Why is it such a problem in healthcare? Um, okay, so there are various issues and different health problems have to countenance uh, with different issues. But baseline, uh, I mean, um, as every health economist will tell you, the, the needs are infinite and the resources are finite, to put it that way. So that's the baseline which we all operate under. And when I say the needs are infinite, uh, and we have a massive progress in biomedical technology. We are ever more able to diagnose and treat rarer a new disease as well, in ways that we wouldn't be able to do this um, only years ago. That all has, um, has cost implications. Uh, that's number one. So, uh, so there, this is a big political decision here with healthcare systems, right? How do we finance our public health systems? And I say public because in most societies, um, we, we tend to agree on this very, very basic fact that access to healthcare system should be based on need rather than people's ability to pay. So how do we finance that? So that's one push factor. On the other hand, we have the other factor that, um, I mean, high taxation is not extremely popular, doesn't win you votes. So on the one hand, the public, when you are a, a healthcare user, you want to have the best possible healthcare service delivered timely and free of charge, right? On the other hand, as a taxpayer, the very same individual is uh, quite reluctant to actually contribute, contribute as much as it is really required to finance healthcare. So that's a very big picture. And you've also highlighted structural issues inherent in the healthcare system. You and your colleagues have identified a hierarchical, top-down approach that means you can communicate fears and suspicions downwards or across to your colleagues, but it's difficult to communicate, especially negatively, 
upwards. Or if you do, they'll turn a deaf ear, what you call the deaf effect. And in other words, apologies, this question's getting rather long, if you can't raise problems above your pay grade, as it were, the only recourse might be to go public. Oh, absolutely. That's definitely, I mean, historically, and that's still largely the case. Uh, a healthcare system is hierarchically structured, as you correctly say, Trevor. I mean, the communication channel and working across disciplines, it's still not a very common practice, although it's increased. Of course, we have, there, there are massive changes right now, how healthcare services are actually delivered. So yes, this is a problem. Obviously, we call it death effect. And, where the managers actually, uh, one thing is that nurses, for example, don't criticize senior doctors' decisions, and junior doctors are more reluctant to criticize their senior peers because they are dependent on them, also because, as I say, the healthcare structure is hierarchical. But there's also the death effect, and that's not just a healthcare system issue. It's very acute in healthcare, I would say, because, I mean, let's face it, healthcare systems deal with issues of... Um, of uh, life and death with, with people's uh, serious diseases. I mean, the public is very attached to issues of health, health systems, like the NHS is one of the most, if not the most popular institution for, for the British public. So yes, so bad news are, are, are actually evaded. Bad news are buried. Managers would rather not hear, overrule or ignore bad news. And that allows, actually, creates these blind spots, as we call them, and allows for, for a failing course of action to continue. And how is that exacerbated in the current pandemic? So it is exacerbated in the situation of crisis, such as a COVID pandemic. It represents a crisis at so many levels. One, uh, one level is, I mean, we have such higher, or at least initially, uh, there were very big projections that our demand will outpace and, 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 and uh, capacity. So this capacity issue on the one hand, and when I say capacity, I mean beds and also staff and also protective equipment. So this kind of material and resource um, capacity. So uh, that's on the one hand, but also I think this is a novel kind of uh, disease. Uh, we still uh, try to find out and understand that disease and the treatment and um, and also this is a um, well pandemic so the numbers of people uh, actually who could, could potentially fall ill are decided by the so-called exponential growth phenomenon so uh, healthcare systems are not uh, designed to cope with such an acute crisis at so many levels. Now you say structurally part of the problem might be that managers are rewarded for success and penalised for failure. But a lot of people will turn around and say to you simply, yes, and what's wrong with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Except that we need to, uh, to go one step before this and just ask ourselves a question. They are rewarded for success in what? So what's the main task? What's the main purpose of a healthcare institution? Yes, of course, the institution has to be financially sound, no doubt about that. Every, every business, every activity has to actually, how can I put it, earn its keep, so to speak. Nevertheless, if we supersede that goal of actually, of actually breaking even for performing the, the primary task, and the primary task of a healthcare institution, of a hospital, of a healthcare center, of a GP practice, and so on and so forth, is to provide 
safe, appropriate services to its patients. And if you put uh, health professionals in an impossible situation, if you give them too few resources for them to be able to provide what they are trained to do, to provide services that are of um, appropriate quality, adequate services, and provide them in the safe conditions. And I would also say in conditions that maintain dignity, in conditions that don't harm patients, I think that managers in healthcare systems should be evaluated and rewarded for success in, in terms of delivering services they are actually you know, appointed to manage. But do you think part of the problem might be us, the general public, that we're intolerant of mistakes, but at the same time often unaware of the real complexities in healthcare and the fine judgment calls that have to be made? Yeah, I think that the public, of course, has very high expectation of the healthcare system because healthcare systems, as I have already mentioned, deal with very fundamental issues that touch upon our very being. Uh, healthcare systems deal with issues of life and death at the extreme of it. But the pandemic brought that to the fore, uh, how important are health systems for all of us. But healthcare systems deal also with um, disease and frailty. So these are threatening conditions and we'd rather not want to see our health professionals committing mistakes. Uh, so that's absolutely a valid point. So we want our health systems to perform and operate under um, zero mistake policy. On the other hand, what a public is also not prepared to accept, it's a lack of transparency. When mistakes do happen, I think, in my view, it is much better for the public to actually see how mistakes are quickly and effectively dealt with rather than left to actually fester and left to continue. Just staying with structures for the moment, you say that part of the problem has been the increase in short-term contracts since the 1980s, leading to greater insecurity. So I suppose it's only when people feel secure that they'll feel confident enough to speak out without fear of reprisal. So could you perhaps just go into more detail? Absolutely. And um, just to go back to that short-term stuff, well, that's another way of cutting costs. <laughs> so um, instead of actually having people employed on permanent contracts and allowing them to, to develop loyalty to their institution, and to, to develop, you know, civic behavior, so to speak, and develop attachment in a way to their own institutions. And that has been the so-called public health ethos. It's still actually very much alive in the NHS. I mean, we only saw under the COVID pandemic that so many people came out of retirement where they didn't have to do that. I mean, doctors, nurses, carers, they came out of retirement in order to actually serve the NHS. So the public health ethos is there. But that ethos is built when people feel loyalty to their place. So by having short-term staff, people are just actually always on, looking for the next opportunity. And because they're dependent on their actually senior manager's references or their line manager's references, they're unlikely to take the stance and speak up and, and report wrongdoing if, if that puts them in a very precarious 
a position, even more precarious position than an average healthcare worker already is. But just to play devil's advocate for a moment, we've been talking about whistleblowers as heroes and heroines, and undoubtedly they often are. But might they sometimes be in the wrong? Either that they may not have the inside information needed to make a reasoned criticism, or that they may sometimes be motivated by spite or malice? Mm -hmm. that, that's a very common question that comes um, when we talk about whistleblowing. So let me just clarify that. In most cases, the whistleblowers are people who actually are uh, senior enough, and, um, and that builds on my previous point that these people feel really loyal to the profession, they feel loyalty to their patients. They feel loyalty to the values, to the ethics of the profession, if I may put it so. And also, they're quite knowledgeable because a whistleblowing claim and a whistleblowing disclosure, which is not backed by evidence, is worth nothing, really. So whistleblowers, the successful whistleblowers, the effective whistleblowers, they document their case before they decide to actually speak up. And returning to the immediate problem at hand, the coronavirus, while you say people may try to work around a problem, sometimes turning a deaf ear to it, the deaf effect that you've spoken about, the thing about COVID-19 is you can't work around it and you can't be deaf to it. So something has to give. Something's got to give indeed. And that's why we saw actually an exacerbation of the phenomenon uh, where healthcare workers, doctors, nurses and carers came out and reported widely, signed letters to the political leadership of this country. But it's not just in the UK. I mean, doctors in Pakistan were also protesting and they were even jailed. Doctors across Europe, really, and in the US, indeed, um, reported as well the absence of protective equipment for themselves, which actually, as I have already stressed, puts patients at risk in, in two ways. It actually increases the possibility of the virus being passed on to patients, but it also incapacitates doctors and carers, and therefore the patients who need the care will not actually receive it because the doctors are, are actually, doctors and nurses and carers are actually falling to COVID because of the absence of protective equipment. And also, just going to the very beginning of the, the onset of this pandemic, I mean, the whole alarm was raised by Chinese doctor and ophthalmologist, a 34-year-old ophthalmologist, Dr. Li, who, who actually succumbed to disease. And initially, the Chinese government tried to suppress um, his, his, uh, this information that he was disclosing to his colleagues and alarm bells that he was really ringing. And then they turned, because, uh, because uh, Dr. Li became such a popular figure with the public, so the, the, the leadership of Chinese Communist Party turned him into a hero as well, and they blamed the local governors for actually the onset of the pandemic. So uh, Dr. Li now is a hero for both the Communist Party and the public. Um, and unfortunately, he had to pay with his life for, for his bravery. So I think... Um, COVID is a great accelerator. It brings actually, you know, to the fore different phenomena that were already there. The phenomenon of healthcare workers struggling to speak out and being silenced, but also the importance of whistleblowers. Uh, that's what I want to just kind of emphasize in my closing pro probably comments. The importance of whistleblowing as an early warning sign. If organizations use them, 
as in, internal intelligence almost to actually act upon their claims and introduce policies needed. But of course, organizations, healthcare organizations don't operate in a vacuum. If they really don't have enough protective equipment, if they operate under hard targets, if they have to live up to unrealistic public expectations, you know, that healthcare can, uh, world-class healthcare can be delivered without adequate resources. I mean, what can managers do? At the end of the day, they can't perform miracles either. So do you think that COVID-19, undesirable as it is, to put it mildly, is an opportunity to change things for the better? 100%. COVID is such a massive opportunity at so many levels, but let's stick with um, healthcare systems. I think COVID brings to the fore the fact that we cannot operate in uh, healthcare organizations as businesses, actually, as for-profit businesses, because healthcare systems are not businesses. You don't make money out of healthcare system, in fact, and, and, and that we should actually value our health professional much more, because if COVID helped us realize something, it's, it's this. Who are the important people? What are the important jobs? which are the jobs that we cannot do without as a society, where certainly these are our carers. And when I say carers, I mean carers in nursing homes as well, in old care homes as well. I mean, these have been other unsung heroes as well, people who perform day in, day out, very, very difficult tasks, again, without protective equipment. So healthcare workers and carers, Maybe we need to pay them more. Maybe we need to reward them more. And maybe, just at a very, very basic level, we need to give them the means for them to be able to do what they are so passionately caring about, to care for us and to care for the society. Mariana, thank you. Mariana Fataki, Professor of Business Ethics at Warwick Business School, talking to me, Trevor Barnes, for this Core Insights podcast. And these podcasts will shortly be expanded to include a core insight series on behavioural science coming soon.